0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so excited to be with you this morning. It's been a privilege and an honor just to get to know some of you, and I look forward to get to know all of you, um, as hopefully at some point I have that opportunity. But I am so, so thankful and so grateful to be here this morning. And, and so this morning, I want to remind us, every time before I preach, I like to remind us of a few things. The first thing is that it's going to be that God's word is going to be the thing that guides us this morning. Unfortunately, there are so many churches out there this morning, on this Sunday, that will hold service and they'll neglect to open God's Word. They will neglect to seek the authority of God's Word. So this morning, I want to remind us that it is only God's Word and God's Word alone that has authority. Nothing that I say, none of my words, but it's God's Word alone. So we're going to go off of that. And this morning is going to be a time of worship. I just look forward to uh, being here and opening up God's word with you. It's going to be a wonderful morning. So, I know you guys have been in the Gospel of Matthew. We're taking a quick pause from that. We're going to actually move to the Gospel of John, as Mike graciously read for us. And I'm very excited about this because this is a message that has convicted my heart and has caused me to really examine myself, and I hope it can do the same for you as well. So, we're not too far off of Easter, right? Easter was, what, two months ago, right? And what do we do over Easter? We celebrate the resurrection of Christ, right? But then how quickly do we forget about that? How quickly do we forget that Jesus was actually raised from the dead? How quickly does that move away from our minds? So, this morning, I want to talk about the effects of the resurrection. In the context of this passage, we'll we'll see again that It's right after the resurrection, and this morning I want us to be considering how the resurrection should affect our lives personally, how it affects your life, how it affects my life, and what we ought to do, because the resurrection itself is the single most important thing that you will ever believe in or not believe in. It's the most important and most impactful decision that you will make. So today we're specifically going to be talking about the impact it had on Peter. We're also going to be talking about the other disciples as well. So uh, I'm in need of prayer as well, so I'm going to pray again for us. Um, So would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we are so gracious that you have given us your word. We are so thankful that you have given us the opportunity to meet together as, as a family that we can worship you, that we can honor you, that we can study your word, that we can learn from your word, God. I pray that we don't just learn from it, but it would transform us, that it would change us. God, I pray that you would just be with us this morning and work in our hearts. And we pray all these things in your son's name, amen. So again, the context, I think, is incredibly, incredibly important. As you go and you study God's word, it's always important. To have and no context, right? So, this is the third time we see in the passage it says that it's the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples, right? And we remember that it was Peter and John who ran to the empty tomb, right? They were ones who ran off to the empty tomb, they were trying to, you know, race each other to beat each other to the tomb, and they were so excited to meet Jesus. And they also seen him alive, they saw the wounds and scars. They saw what happened to Christ. They knew about when he died, and they saw that he rose from the dead. They witnessed all of these things, and how amazing is that? So my first point, it's going to make sense in a second, but it's you are not who you once were, and we see this in verses 1 through 3. So let's read it together just as a reminder and a refresher. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples in the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. So what are they doing now? They know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They know that Jesus is alive. So so they went and and they told their families. They told everybody that they knew. No. They went to the surrounding cities and they told everybody that Jesus had preached to and, and come in contact with. No. They they went to the surrounding nations around them to preach that Jesus has been raised. This guy had literally came back to life. No. They went fishing. They went fishing. So, why is it significant that they went fishing? Why would they go fishing? Because it seems like an odd response, right? You just saw something miraculous happen, and they decide, I'm going to go fishing. And some may say that they did this to support themselves, maybe support their families. And I'm sure they were, and they probably had maybe not unsure of their purpose at this moment because they were waiting on the Lord But what I think is significant, and I think what a lesson that we can learn from this is, they went back to what they knew, and they went back to their old lives, with the leadership, of course, of Peter. And so they went back to what possibly made them feel safe, maybe secure, self-sufficient, independent. They went back to what they knew. They went back to their old lives. As if the resurrection really had no impact on them. As if it really had not changed them and they didn't see a miraculous thing just happen. And I think the same thing, unfortunately, can be said for so many Christians today. The resurrection has no effect on them. As if Jesus hadn't given them a different calling. Remember, the disciples had a different calling from Jesus. He says, you're fishermen, but I'm going to call you to be fishers of men. Jesus gave them a new calling. And so we say we've been saved. We say we experience the power of Christ. We say that we've been changed and received the gospel message, but then nothing changes. We go back to our old ways. We go back to, often, our old lives. Often we return to normal comforts, our daily routines. Often our old sins or past wickedness. As if the resurrection has not changed us or changed anything in us at all. If we say we believe, in fact, we are called to newness of life. I want to open up to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It's going to instruct us about how we're called in this way. Paul is writing this letter, and he says it very clearly. He says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live it? Live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. live with him. So, if you're stuck in your old ways, perhaps your old sins, I want you to seriously ask yourself in the seats that you're in right now, to ask yourself, have you truly been crucified with Christ? Have you truly taken the gospel and allowed it to take root into your heart, into your spirit, and to transform you? Are you stuck holding on to your old ways, your old life, and your old sins? Jesus says in in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. Now, some of the things of our old lives, they may not necessarily be bad, but ask yourself, has anything changed? Is anything different? Are you still living that same life? in the same routines. If Christ has called you, you're no longer the same person. Your life ought to be not the same. Christ's resurrection, it's meant to change you. It's meant to change you. That's what we just read in Romans chapter 6. So this is why Jesus, going back to the text, he reminds Peter of something. He reminds him of the first call. This is seen in in verses 4 through 14, which, once again, I'm going to read for us again, just so we're constantly looking back at God's Word and using that to inform our thoughts. It says this, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they had got out on the land, they saw the charcoal fireplace in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. So with the fish, this now was the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples that he was raised from the dead. So there we have also our context. So they're out on the boat, and they catch nothing. Been there. Done that. Not fun. And I think we've all probably been there. Um, and they hear a loud calling, right? They hear a loud calling to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And what do they do? They catch 153 fish exactly. Now, nobody really knows exactly the reason that John gives us such a precise number. Perhaps it's just because he's a fisherman and that's what they did. They really counted it in their haul. And maybe he was just showing us this great number of fish. But if you're paying attention, much like Peter and John were, you probably notice this, that this is the same exact way that Jesus calls them in Luke chapter 5, when they're first called, where he has a miracle so great, where, where there's a haul of fish so large that it was actually sinking their boat. So it's a reminder of their first calling. Christ is, is, is clearly reminding them when they're first called, right? And just like the first time Jesus called them, there was seemingly no hesitation to follow, Right? I mean, the text says Peter threw himself into the water. He was eager to once again be with his Lord. Peter's always got to be the dramatic one, right? And so we find him doing the same again. And there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus had met with his disciples in this way in order to remind them of their first call. One commentator writes this, saying, Perhaps John is indicating that now the disciples have come full circle. They first committed their lives to Christ after a miraculous catch, and now at the end they recommit themselves to the risen Christ after a similar miracle. Something we can take away from this, perhaps, is the idea that God often reminds us of when we are first committed to Christ when we are in need of recommitment. God often reminds us of when we are first committed to Christ when we are in need of recommitment. Jesus explains this and, and very clearly in Revelation 2, 4 through 5, when he's speaking to a church in Ephesus and, and warning them, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, listen to this, repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." Jesus says to do the things that you did at first. He reminds this church of the love and devotion that they had, but somewhere along the way, they got distracted. Somewhere along the way, something else enticed them. Somewhere along the way, something drew them towards somewhere else. And does this not, again, sound like so many of our lives, where we've lost our way and we're in need of of reminding and returning. I mean, how many churches today have lost their way where they've forgotten their first love? They've become distracted by smoke machines and lights and celebrity pastors, but then they leave behind the very person of Christ. Every Sunday is like a performance, but Christ is not mentioned or exalted. They lost their first love. And Jesus says, they will inevitably die. In the church of Ephesus, he says, I will remove you from your place. Sometimes even the strongest of believers, believe it or not, are in need of a recommitted spirit, including the disciples themselves, right? Including the disciples themselves. No matter your position or how strong of a believer maybe that you think you are, it's always important to examine your heart and truly think, Am I in need of recommitment to Christ? Have I gone distracted over something? Have I lost my way towards something else? Or is Christ my one and only? Is Christ the only one that I'm looking upon and following? Or have I followed something else? Again, it's a reminder of returning. So now all the disciples, they, they meet with Jesus, right? And they're they're beginning to have breakfast with him. And I'm sure in their minds they're thinking, this is great. We're so excited. We get to be with Jesus again. This is going to be just how it was before. And it's going to be awesome. We're going to be traveling again. Jesus is going to be preaching. He rose from the dead. This is awesome. And we're going to pick up right where we left off. But Jesus, he had other plans for them. Jesus starts talking about this new calling. And he specifically hones in on Peter. And he does this for a reason. So point number three is a new calling. And this is seen in verses 15 through 19, which again, I will remind us of the text and read for us again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So after breakfast is finished, Jesus addresses Peter by his full name to get his attention. And parents, I think you know very well, to get your kids' attention, you address them by their full name, right? And kids, you know that you're in trouble when your parents address you by your full name. And my wife, to get my attention, interestingly enough, she says my middle name, which is Wilson. That's one's free. Um, and oftentimes, right, that's how we get our attention. And Jesus does this to Peter. And so once he's got Peter's attention, he's perked up, he's ready to listen. He says, Do you love me more than these? That was out of nowhere. Do you love me more than these? Perhaps. What is he talking about with these? What are the these around here? Love me with these. Perhaps he's referring to maybe the fishing boats and the nets and maybe the things around him that are concerning his old life. Perhaps that's one idea. Or perhaps referring to the rest of the disciples, more than these disciples around you, reminding Peter of his boastful proclamation in Matthew 26. This is Peter's words when he says, he says, though they fall away, talking about the other disciples, because of you, I will never fall away, basically saying that he was better than the other disciples, that he loved Jesus way more than they did, right? Right? But why might Jesus be reminding him of this instance? Well, this is the exact moment when Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times. When Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times. So no matter the issue, Jesus asked the question twice more. Peter, do you love me? What's key here to keep in mind and remember that Jesus is asking him with the intention of restoration, not condemnation. Jesus wants to restore Peter and bring him back and then use him as an instrument for his service. So no doubt in my mind, Peter, he was still feeling the shame and the guilt of denying Jesus three times. It only happened a couple days ago. This is still fresh on his heart and his mind, which is probably why he was grieved. But Christ had given the opportunity for Peter to return to him. Three times. Where Peter had failed, Christ was ready to restore. So Peter returning to Christ, it it did not come without a new calling, though. He calls Peter in two ways. And I also believe that he calls believers similarly in two ways as well. The first thing to note is he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Notice first who the sheep belong to. They're not Peter's. They're not the world's, they're Christ's. They are Christ's sheep. This gives a sense of stewardship. To take care of what's Christ's, to take care of what's his and not what is ours, gives a responsibility to believers. And in Peter, I mean, he understood this. In Peter's epistle, he writes in in 1 Peter 5, he refers to believers, believe it or not, as under-shepherds. And he refers to Christ as the chief shepherd. So he understood this idea that we are just given the ability to tend to his sheep. So no matter who you are discipling or who you are over or what ministry you're in charge of, no ministry is yours, no person is yours, no Sunday school class is yours, no outreach team is yours, no mission team is yours, no church is one pastors, all of which belong to Christ. They are his sheep. And we are called to tend to them. Believers are given the responsibility of stewarding. And what's cool is he talks about stewarding not just the mature sheep, but also the innocent little lambs. He has a very clear distinction there. So not just the mature ones, but also the innocent ones. And what a frightening responsibility that is, right? Right? This is, this is not a calling on how you handle the culture or how you handle the world. It's a calling on feeding his sheep. How do you care for his sheep? That's what's important here. And I, I don't want to enter into heaven and I meet with the Lord and he asks me, Noah, do you love me? And I say, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. But he replies, then why didn't you feed my sheep? Then why didn't you feed my sheep? What scary words would that be? For God to say to us, well, why didn't you care for my sheep? Why didn't you feed my people? What a responsibility we are given, right? So how must we feed them? Well, I'm glad you asked. How must we feed them? Well, it's found in Matthew 4.4. 4. Jesus says, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word from the mouth of God, right? How do we feed a sheep? It's the word of God. It's his word. If we're over and we're discipling believers and we're not giving him his word or we're not actively pursuing him in his word, are we truly helping them? Are we truly feeding them? Are we truly tending to his sheep? It's found in his word. And as believers, we must return to that consistently and constantly. So the next thing that Jesus is calling to is he calling him to follow me even unto death. I'm going to read again this last part here in 18 through 19 again. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, Follow me. Do you get what Jesus is telling Peter here? Do you you get what he's saying? He's he's literally telling Peter how he's going to die. He's telling Peter how he's going to die. And his death would not be done on his own accord, it would be done by another. And this description was often used to describe crucifixion Peter, you're going to be crucified. I wonder how he took that in. That's going to be, that's quite difficult, right? And I think most people, if they heard this, Jesus comes to you and says, you're going to be crucified, I think a lot of us would maybe flee or run from that. We'd be very, very scared. But Jesus is calling Peter unto death, death on a cross. And and Peter, very funny, we didn't uh, read this section, but in the next few verses, he goes, well, wait a minute, what about this guy? What about John? What about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus, I love his answer. Jesus always has the best answers. He says, It doesn't concern you. It's not not your problem. It doesn't concern you. What matters to you is you follow me. You follow me. That's what matters. It doesn't concern you. And so, what do we know from church history? Peter followed, and he died on a cross. And not just that, from church history, we know that Peter didn't just die on a cross, but he died upside down on a cross because he said he's not worthy to die in the same way of his Lord. He's not worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. So, this is the story for Peter. He went from a denier of Christ to the martyr for the glory of God. That's the story for Peter. And guess what? We have that same calling. The same calling. We may not be called necessarily to be martyrs for Christ. Not every single one of us is is going to die for his name's sake. And this may be like an extreme or unreachable commitment. But this morning it starts and it begins with dying to self. To die for the sake of the gospel. Here's where the belief in the resurrection should take you to the grave. Burying your old ways and committing your life to Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 16:24 through 25, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Denying and dying to self. If the resurrection is true, which we believe it is, then we must be reminded that it alone is of utmost importance. Not ourselves, not our things, not our careers, not our money, not even our own families. It is the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. And guess what? Others need to know. Others need to know. So this morning I have a few challenges for us, and this passage of scripture has challenged me as well. Two challenges. Number one, first one is to examine yourself and to consider how has the resurrection, the belief in the gospel, how has it changed you? Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you don't really know about this whole gospel or Jesus thing. Consider how it could change you. How it might transform you. So how has the resurrection changed you? And then number two, how are you spreading the gospel today? How are you spreading the gospel today? June 12th, how is the gospel being spread today in your families, in your communities, in your homes? Is the gospel really that important to you that you want to share it with everyone? Or are we distracted by other things like maybe Peter was? So how are you spreading the gospel today? Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word that it has the power to convict and change us. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. That is the thing that has the power to transform us and change us. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning we would be reminded to return to our first love. That we would be reminded to turn to you in all things that nothing would distract us, nothing would get in the way, that we would pursue you and you alone. Lord, again, I praise you for the opportunity that we have to come together as believers and open up your word. I thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given to me and to my wife to be here to visit this amazing group of believers. Lord, I pray that you continue to bless this day and bless this time of worship. In your name I pray. Amen.